This sermon is brought to you by Christ Church South Philadelphia, a church that is committed to living out the gospel in their neighborhood and from there impacting the world. For more information about our church or to support our mission, you can go to www.ChristChurchSouthPhilly.org. Well, if you have a Bible with you, please turn it to the book of Numbers. If you do not have a Bible, we'd love to give one to you today. So you go ahead and shoot your hand up in the air. We'd be happy to get a Bible out to you. We're going to be in Numbers chapter 20 today. Numbers is just a few books in, so Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, the fourth book of the Bible. We're in a series this summer that we're calling The Story Behind the Song. In this series, we are looking at the backstories to some of the songs that were written in the book of the Bible called the Book of Psalms. And so the Book of Psalms is a book of songs. And we are going through this series where we're not just looking at the psalm, but we're looking at what were the historical events that caused this song to be birthed in these people's hearts as they were inspired by God. And we're doing that because when you know the story behind the song, the song just hits a little different. Uh, It takes on a deeper meaning. And this morning we're going to read Numbers chapter 20, verses 1 through 13, which gives us the story behind what is the oldest song in the Bible, which is Psalm chapter 90. Psalm 90 is written by Moses. If you know the Psalms, most of them are written by a guy named David, who was Israel's great king, but Moses lived many, many hundreds of years before David. And so this is the oldest song that we have recorded for us. And Psalm 90 is this beautiful song. It was our call to worship. It's this beautiful song that that sings about just the contentment and satisfaction that we can find in God. Like drinking a cold cup of water on a hot day. Or or lying down to sleep after a long day of work. Or taking a nice shower after being covered with grime. The relief of those moments, the satisfaction of those moments, the contentment that we can feel in those times. Well, Psalm 90 is all about how God gives us that on an even deeper level. But the story behind that song is that it was not written when someone was coming down from this, you know, beautiful spiritual high. No, that song was written after things had been made a mess. And so we are going to read this morning in Numbers chapter 20 about Moses and a mess that he made. As we pick up his story, if you just don't know or familiar with who Moses is, Moses is the person that God appointed to really rescue his people from their slavery to Egypt. He had rescued from their slavery to Egypt and was going to lead them through the promised land. But as he does, he comes to this moment of, honestly, a crisis of his faith in Numbers chapter 20. I've been this morning's sermon, there is mercy in the mess. There is mercy in the mess. Let's turn our attention to God's word, starting in verse 1 of Numbers 20. And the people of Israel, the whole congregation, came into the wilderness of Zin in the first month, and the people stayed in Kadesh. And Miriam died there and was buried there. Now there was no water for the congregation, and they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron, and the people quarreled with Moses and said, would that we had perished. When our brothers perished before the Lord, 
Why have you brought the assembly of the Lord into this wilderness that we should die here, both we and our cattle? And why have you made us come up out of Egypt to bring us to this evil place? It's no place for grain or figs or vines or pomegranates, and there's no water to drink. Then Moses and Aaron went from the presence of the assembly to the entrance of the tent of meaning and fell on their faces. And the glory of the Lord appeared to them. The Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Take the staff and assemble the congregation, you and Aaron your brother, and tell the rock before their eyes to yield its water. So you shall bring water out of the rock for them, and give drink to the congregation and their cattle. Moses took the staff from before the Lord as he had commanded him. Then Moses and Aaron gathered the assembly together before the rock, and he said to them, Hear now, you rebels, shall we bring water for you out of this rock? And Moses lifted up his hand and struck the rock with his staff twice. And water came out abundantly. And the congregation drank in their livestock. And the Lord said to Moses and Aaron, Because you did not believe in me to uphold me as holy in the eyes of the people of Israel, therefore you shall not bring this assembly into the land that I have given them. These are the waters of Meribah. The people of Israel quarreled with the Lord, and through them he showed himself holy. Let's bow our heads in a word of prayer. I actually want to encourage you to have a time of prayer between you and God, and just ask that he would speak to you today through the preaching of his word. Now would you uh, please pray also for me, because I need God's help. Please pray that I would be helpful to you, speak in a way that is clear, and is ultimately faithful to God. God, thank you so much for your great love, which we've already sung about, which we've already prayed about. Lord, I pray in your great love you'd meet us, even in the midst of this messy story. Lord, please meet us in your love and show us how there is mercy even in the mess. Praise the name of Jesus. Amen. So usually I have several points to help us kind of keep things organized as we make our way through the text. But today I really just want to keep pulling on this one thread, keep pulling on this one idea, this idea that there is mercy in the mess. This messy story starts with a season of sadness. Moses' sister Miriam has died. Few things are harder than having to bury someone that you love. Moses is feeling that pain. And his pain is compounded by the reality that she had died before being able to come into the land that God had promised to bring them to. When God had led Moses to take the people out of Egypt. God said he would take them into a land that would be flowing with abundance. A land in which they could thrive. A land in which they could experience the goodness of God forever. But as they journeyed to that destination, the people kept on complaining. This is taking too long. This is too hard. They kept saying, are we there yet? Took a trip with my kids yesterday, and one of my children, I'll spare you their name to protect the guilty, uh, kept saying, are we there yet? Are we there yet? I'm like, we're in the middle 
of a four-lane highway. I promise you, the people that we're going to visit do not live in the middle of a four-lane highway. We are not there yet. <laughs> you will know when you know. But the Israelites kept complaining about how long their journey was taking. And because they kept complaining, God kept delaying their arrival. Not because he was trying to tempt them, not because he was trying to exasperate them, not because he was being mean to them, but because God, in his love for them, knew that they would never be satisfied in the land until they had first learned to be satisfied in him. And so if God just gave them what they wanted without first showing them what they truly needed, they never would have been in a position to thrive. How often we can think the stuff that God gives is what we really need. When what we really need is to know the giver of the gift. You know, how often we can think that, oh, when this happens to me, when this finally occurs, then I'll be satisfied. God wants us to know, no, 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 we don't need to arrive in order to be satisfied. We just need to be with him. But in the midst of the people's sin and really refusal to turn to God, Miriam dies. So Moses is, oh, did I die here? I died here, going in and out. Uh-oh. We have a battery issue. I don't know. Let's see what happens. Um, so we, we, we planned that for dramatic effect. So Moses is heartbroken over the death of his sister. I'm sure he's in many ways feeling frustrated at the people. This is your fault. If you didn't keep complaining, my sister would have made it to the promised land and could have been buried there, seeing the goodness of God. He's sad, probably frustrated. And then, on top of all that, their water supply runs out. And they're in a desert. And it is hot. And so the people, once again, start complaining. They start complaining, saying, why did you even take us out of Egypt? Which, remember, was a time of slavery. But, but it would have been better to live in Egypt as a slave than to die of thirst here in the desert. And so Moses and his brother Aaron go to God and just ask God, what are we to do? And God tells Moses to go and speak to a rock. And that God will cause water to come out of the rock. These people are complaining, but God is going to show them some mercy. As Moses leaves, and he goes to the people, and he does not do what God says. He, he does several things which he was not to have done. First, instead of speaking to the rock as he was told to do, he speaks to the people. In verse 10, he speaks to them and says, Hear now, you rebels. Moses is angry. Moses is calling people names. He is speaking words of judgment. Words that God had not given him to say. Moses is acting here in his own authority. One of the ways that you know a spiritual leader has become toxic is when they start acting like there's an authority in their position instead of an authority that only comes from God's word. Listen, friends, spiritual authority does not come from a position or from a person. It only comes from the Word of God. And so the only thing that spiritual leaders can say with authority is what God has already said by His authority. But Moses had lost sight of that. Moses thought that he could speak to the people and tell the people his own thoughts, express his own feelings, and that they had to listen to him. And then he goes on to say, shall we bring water for you out of this? rock. 
Now, can Moses make water come out of a rock? I don't think so. Moses had totally lost sight here of who was actually in charge. This all culminates in him taking the staff. And we understand when Moses takes the staff, the staff had been given to him as a sign of God's authority. And so Moses takes the staff that was supposed to be a sign of God's authority, and he takes that staff and uses it in a way that God had not authorized. Instead of speaking to the rock, in anger, Moses abuses his authority by taking the staff of authority and using it to strike the rock, not once, but twice. Have you ever hit something in anger before? Moses knows what that feels like. Moses is angry with the people. But this is what God says is really going on in his heart. Look at verse 12. God does not correct him for being angry with the people. God says, because you did not believe in me. God is telling Moses that his anger issues with people were really a belief issue in God. Now, we aren't told what Moses wasn't believing. Was he not believing God that his sister was being comforted in the presence of the Lord? Was he allowing the pain of his present to color how he started treating others? Maybe he was not believing that God could be at work in these people. And he could use even these people's sins to lead them to the path of repentance. Maybe he was just done trying to be with stubborn people. Maybe he had stopped believing that God can work even in hardened hearts. We aren't told what Moses stopped believing about God, but what we are told is that his people issues weren't ultimately about the people. Ultimately, they were about God. What Moses was experiencing was disruption in his relationship with the Lord. And I think that we often miss this when we start having people problems. I think often we start having people problems, we think, well, when they start changing, then I'll start being different. And so I'll be more patient when this person starts treating me better. I wouldn't get angry on the road if other drivers just learned how to drive. I might or might not have said that in recent memory. Married couples, we can think, well, I'll start loving them when they start being more loving to me. Parents, I'll be better with my kids once they learn how to in our workplaces. Well, if this person just did this, then I wouldn't have to be so. And we take our negative emotions, we take our negative actions, and we blame others for them, not realizing that our issues aren't ultimately about them. They might be tempting us, they might be squeezing us, but we need to understand that what's coming out of us is not our Issues with them, what's coming out of us is our lack of belief in God. When we are experiencing people issues, what has happened to us is that people have gotten big to us. Our focus is on them. They've gotten big and God has gotten small. We're not seeing God for who he truly is. No one who is seeing the Lord, no one who is satisfying the Lord is ever worried about what other people are doing or how other people are treating them. But Moses was so caught up in these people's opinions about him and these people's sin and all these people issues, he is caught up in his anger because ultimately he was not being satisfied in God. 
And so as these Israelites, they're making a mess of things by complaining. They're making a mess of things by living in fear and anxiety. They're making a mess of things by doubting God for their future. And Moses is making a mess of things because he is frustrated, he's discouraged, he is angry. And friends, can't we also make a mess of things? Can't all those types of emotions, fear, anger, discouragement, frustration, anxiety, complaining spirit, can't all those things be a messy work in us sometimes? Well, praise God there's mercy in the mess. Praise God there's mercy in the mess. Because even when Moses sins by striking the rock, God still brings water flowing out of that rock. And it flows abundantly. God doesn't give them just a little trickle to show them that he could do it, but he's going to withhold from them until they really learn their lesson. No, he abundantly provides for the people's needs, even though they have been sinning against him. And he abundantly provides for them through Moses, even though Moses had been sinning against God as well. And so this God of mercy doesn't say, I've had enough with you. He doesn't say you should have gotten it by now. He doesn't say, I'm done dealing with this. This is enough. No, the God of mercy never says enough. The God of mercy always says, I'm going to do it again. I'm going to do it again. And again and again and again, he pours out his mercy into our dry and thirsty souls. There is mercy in the mess. And from that experience of mercy, Moses goes on to write the words of Psalm 90. You can turn to Psalm 90 in your Bible if you want. We also will have it projected for you on the screens. I know it can be hard to flip in the middle of a sermon. Moses starts in Psalm 90 by saying, Lord, you have been our dwelling place in all generations. Moses is resting in the reality that God had always been with them, even though they had so often tried to push God away. And I love that phrase, dwelling place, because it doesn't mean just, just, just the place where we are. No, it speaks about the place where you lie down and sleep. When, it, when it's used with animals, it means their, their den. You know, you, you, there's all kinds of places you can be. But it's one thing to be in a place, it's another thing to be in your dwelling place. It's one thing to go out to dinner with someone at a restaurant and to be with them there. And another place where you don't have to clean up the mess because someone else has been hired to clean up that mess and they're taking care of everything. It's, another thing, it's one thing to be in a, a formal place with other people, it's another thing to have them into your home. To have them into your dwelling place. And even then, how often we invite people into our dwelling place, and in our dwelling places, we have those spaces where it's okay for people to go, and those spaces where we put all the junk that's usually out away so that we can feel better about the places we can invite people to go. But what God is talking about here, this is not a, I'm just around you. No, this is, I am intimately with you. This is not sitting at the formal dining table. This is the friend who's been invited into the basement where you have to push some laundry aside that's sitting out on the couch in order to have a place to rest. Friends, God meets us even in the messy places of our lives. There's no part of our lives that we have to clean up first 
in order to get to God. How often we get that. I talk to people so often like, well, I'll come to church, but first I need to get these things in my life. Friends, you don't get clean to go take a shower. We don't clean ourselves up to come to get to God. No, we come to God. And even in our mess, He can be our dwelling place. He's not just there in the tidy parts. He's there in every part. And He's always been there. Notice it says he, He has been there throughout all generations. We need to read that in the backdrop of these people who are in their desert wanderings. Like they literally don't have a home right now. They, they, are, they are living in tents. But Moses is saying that, oh, when God is your home, then even when you don't have a home, you are never truly unhoused. Like when God's your home, you don't even need a home in order to be at home. You can always be at rest. When your rest is with the Lord. Lord, you have been our dwelling place throughout all generations. He goes on to say in verse 2, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever you had formed the earth and the world, from everlasting to everlasting, you are God. God has always been. He is from everlasting. And God will always be. He is to everlasting. Try to think about that just for a second. God existed before there was existence. Everything that we know in our world comes from something. God's the one being that comes from nothing, and everything comes from Him. In philosophical terms, He is known as the unmoved first mover. He is the one who set everything in this world into motion. And so for us, like maybe we can picture back a thousand years. Maybe we can even try to picture back two thousand years to the pyramids of Egypt. Maybe we can try even picture back to the, you know, the Big Bang, whatever that was. But can we possibly go back to before the Big Bang? Can we possibly go back to what was before there was before? Like our circuits start to fry when we think about God being from everlasting and to everlasting. The more we think about God's eternality, the more our minds will hurt. But I think there's actually a lot of comfort in that. There's comfort to be found in a God that we can't fully understand. Because how often our frustrations in life, how often our discouragements in life, how often our anxieties and our anger come because we don't feel like things are in our control. Because, because we don't feel like things are going in the way that we think they should. Because we don't understand what is happening. But if we believe in an everlasting God who is far greater than anything we can imagine, who's not limited to what we think is happening, who is not limited to how we can view him, what means to be in control, if we believe that there's a God who is beyond us, then there's a God that's not limited to us. And so even when I don't understand what's going on, that doesn't mean that things have started spinning out of God's control. No, he's a God who's beyond what I can understand, therefore we can trust him. When things happen to us that we don't understand. God is the everlasting God. There's mercy to be found in knowing that he's beyond us. And then having a healthy perspective of who we are in light of this everlasting God. That's where Moses goes in verses 3 through 4 of Psalm 90. He says, you return man to dust and say, return, O children of man. For a thousand years in your sight are but as yesterday when it is past, or as a watch in the night. You know, as we go through life, so many things that happen to us, 
can seem like such a big deal. And they are. But when we take what happens to us and put that in the perspective of the everlasting nature of God, it's meant to change how big a deal we think it is. Friends, here's what we need to know about everything that happens here. It's all dust. It's all dust. It's all, as verses 5 through 6 says, like grass that's renewed in the morning. In the morning it flourishes and it's renewed. In the evening it fades and withers. Everything that exists expires. It's dust. It's here today and gone tomorrow. And so that person that you're upset with, that situation that you fear, that thing you're longing for that you think will finally satisfy you, friends, it's dust. And that's not meant to trivialize anyone's pain, but it is meant to help bring some perspective into that pain. Think about the last time that you were at the beach. Think about all that sand. All that sand. Now in your mind, try to pick up one grain of that little bit of sand. That grain of sand is our life now. And the beach full of sand is our lives for eternity. And even that isn't actually a perfect analogy because there is somewhere an end to all that sand. But there's no end to the eternity of God. And yet how often we get consumed with the little speck of sand of our lives. How often we get consumed with the little things that, that are, feel like really big things, and they are, in one sense, really big things, and yet, in comparison to eternity, they're dust. They're a speck of sand. We hold on to our hurts. We become fearful of our losses, fearful of potential losses. We chase things that won't last, forgetting that it's all dust. And I just have to wonder, as Moses is writing this psalm, if he's thinking back to that moment when he struck the rock, and he's like, man, I'd gotten consumed with the speck. I'd lost my perspective. His frustration came from the fact that what he was dealing with in that moment, instead of remembering that that moment, oh, it was going to be here, and then it was going to be gone. And so the next time, friends, that you are tempted to get angry at someone, the next time you're tempted to feel anxious, the next time that you are just wanting to wallow in despair, I think is actually meant to bring us some peace. This is all dust. Nothing in this world lasts. And so that hard thing that you are experiencing in that moment, that hard thing will not last. But one day will give way to the glory of being with the Eternal One. We are just passing through here, friends. We are just passing through here on our way to our true home where we'll be with the one that we were made to be with for all eternity. We'll be with God forever, finally and fully satisfied in his love. But having the perspective that we're just passing through here does not mean that nothing that happens here matters. No, no, it actually, it all matters tremendously. Moses goes on to draw our attention to this in verses 7 through 11. He says, for you are brought to an end by your anger. By your wrath we are dismayed. You have set our iniquities before you, our secret sins in the light of your presence. For all our days pass away under your wrath. We bring our years to an end like a sigh. 
the years of our life are 70, or even by reason of strength, 80. Yet their span is but toil and trouble. They soon are gone and fly away. Who considers the power of your anger and your wrath according to the fear of you? These are the verses that help us understand that that Moses wrote Psalm 90 after experiencing Numbers 20. Because he's talking about his sin. He's talking about his hidden sin. Which is what happened when he sinned at the waters of Mirabah. Right? Those, those, the, the sin that he did at Mirabah, who knew that Moses had sinned? The people didn't know that Moses had been told to speak to the rock and not strike the rock. The people didn't know that Moses hadn't been given those words of judgment that he spoke in condemnation over them. Who knew that? Only Moses knew that. And so the secret sins that Moses is talking about here, he's talking about his own sin. So the sin that, that he thought was hidden, but that was not hidden before God. And so Moses is identifying that Numbers 20 is a situation in which the psalm was, was written. And I think as we read these verses, I think they can be honest, like, like they feel kind of out of place. Like we're just reading about God being our dwelling place. Like, you know, God, it's so sweet to be with you. And then we come to verse 7 and we're like, and we're brought to an end by your wrath. It's like, what happened? You know, did someone interrupt Moses in between verses 6 and 7? Like put him in a really bad mood? Like, like what, what, why this sudden turn? Well, friends, what we're seeing in these verses is we're seeing God being described as a God of justice. He's not a God who's getting angry for no reason. No, he's a God who's responding to the sin that Moses had committed. And so what should we expect God to feel when he sees wrong? What should we expect God to feel when he sees evil? I mean, it says, what do we want God to be when he encounters evil? Do we want him to be just or do we want him to be something less than just? I was talking with someone recently who just gone back from leading a rescue mission to save some children who were being sold in a child brothel, brothel in Cambodia. And he told me that the evil of those places exist not because the authorities don't know about them, but because they get paid to turn a blind eye to them. And when we hear that, when I hear that, there's only one appropriate response to something like that. It should be rage. It should be anger. The people that are supposed to be in positions of authority bringing justice instead are living with corruption and exploiting some of the most vulnerable There's only one righteous response to that kind of evil, and it is anger. There needs to be justice for that. The righteous response to wrong being done is to feel a desire for justice for those wrongs that are done. And friends, if that's what we feel in our limited, finite minds, why should we expect God to be less just than us? Why would we want God to be less just than us? Friends, a God who does not bring justice, a God who can be like those police officers and somehow be corrupted to turn a blind eye to wrongs, a God who's not a God of justice is a God who's not worthy of our worship. But God is worthy of our worship. Because God is a God of justice. And I'll be honest, I think we don't struggle in general with the idea of God being just because I think God has placed in us a desire for justice. We feel rage when we hear those stories of atrocity because that comes from being made in the image of God and and having a sense of his justice with us. And so I don't think that we struggle with the idea of justice in general. I think we struggle with it 
Because then we start to take inventory of our own lives. Like, wait, hold up. There's a God of justice. And that might mean there's some problems for me. It's a, we get scared of what this could mean for us. But we need to understand that Moses is not writing this to scare anyone. No, he actually tells us what the appropriate response is. When we understand that there's a God of justice, how are we supposed to live in light of that? He tells us in verse 12. In light of this God of justice, he says, teach us to number our days that we may gain a heart of wisdom. Wisdom in the Bible is always means that it's about knowing how to apply God's word to the daily realities of our lives. That's what wisdom is. It's not being just book smart. It's about being street smart. How does God's word apply to this daily stuff that we go through? And what Moses is saying here is that in light of the reality that God's a God of justice, our response should be that we understand our lives are not endless. No, we're going to all stand before him one day, and that knowledge should lead us to take our days very seriously. There are no throwaway, meaningless moments. We are only passing through here, but we're not meant to just pass by things here. No, God wants us to live with intentionality. Every day matters because God is a God of justice. And so we should not want to waste time pursuing things that don't matter, but instead seek to have a heart of wisdom and know how to meet God and be obedient to God in the everyday moments of our lives. And then when we fail to do what God says in those moments, when we don't live in the ways of wisdom that God has for us, praise God that Psalm 90 goes on and doesn't just end in verse 12, but he goes on to write in verses 13 through 15, return, O Lord, how long? Have pity on your servants. Satisfy us in the morning with your steadfast love that we may rejoice and be glad all our days. Make us glad for as many days as you've afflicted us and for as many years as we have seen evil. That word there where he says, have pity on us, it means more literally, be moved with compassion for us. Moses is crying out to the God of justice to be moved with compassion towards him. Moses is asking for mercy. How can he do that? How can he ask this God of justice that he just talked about, how can he ask this God of justice for mercy? Well, notice, he does not ask God to show him mercy by turning a blind eye to his wrongs. No, he asks him to act in accordance with his steadfast love. He says, satisfy us with your steadfast love. Treat us according to your steadfast love. When you, we see that, that phrase in the Old Testament, steadfast love, it's usually, and here it is, a translation of a Hebrew word has said, which is a word that means God's covenantal love. It's the promise that God made at the dawn of time. The covenant that God made with our first parents, Adam and Eve. After having judged them for their sin, God promised them that one day he would send a savior who would rescue them from their sin. And that promise is known as God's covenant. It's known as his unbreakable promise. And so God's steadfast love, it's his unbreakable love. 
It is his covenantal love. It's the love that did not abandon the world to their sin after the flood, but said to Moses, I'm going to preserve you and your family. It's the love that took Abraham out of his sun-worshipping pagan, pagan land and said, I'm going to make you into a nation that will reveal my glory to the nations of the world. It is the steadfast love of the Lord that did not leave the Israelites in slavery in Egypt, but raised up Moses and brought them out miraculously to freedom. And so Moses is basing uh, his appeal to God for his mercy. He is basing this on the promise that God had made. God, be true to who you said you are. Be true to who you say you are as the covenantal God. Make good on your promise to us is what Moses is asking. And friends, we know that God has made good and has fully and finally kept his promise to show his steadfast covenantal love to his people in the person and work of Jesus Christ. Titus chapter 3 verse 4 says that God's steadfast, his his, his said love, his covenantal love has appeared. It has become embodied in Jesus. In Jesus, the eternal God who exists from everlasting to everlasting. In Jesus, this eternal God came into the dust of this world to be counted as one of us. So that God's justified anger for sin could be poured out. So that his justice could be executed while his mercy could also be expressed. 1 Peter chapter 2 verse 24 tells us that on the cross, Jesus bore our sins in his body on the tree. On the cross, we are not seeing a good man die. No, on the cross, we are seeing the innocent one be charged with our guilt. We are seeing the pure one be filled with our shame. We are seeing the righteous one be made to be a transgressor. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says that on the cross, God made him who knew no sin, Jesus, to be sin. And so as this psalm asks us to consider who considers the power of God's anger, friends, Jesus not only considered it, Jesus experienced it. And not just some of it. No, he experienced all of God's righteous judgment. All that would take us in eternity to experience in hell. All of God's justified rage towards sin was poured into judgment on that cursed tree as Jesus took that eternal punishment into his eternal being. He hung there and he endured it all until he could finally cry out, it is finished. Friends, on the cross, it has been finished. On the cross, our sins have been paid for. On the cross, God's justice has fully and finally been satisfied. And it is that cry from the cross where Jesus says it is finished. It is that cry that allows us to cry to God, Return, O Lord, to me and have mercy on me. Our appeal to God for His mercy is not asking God to turn His eye from our sins and to sweep them under the rug. No, it's saying, God, according to Your steadfast love, which led Jesus to die on the cross for my sins, according to the mercy purchased for me at that hill called Calvary, have mercy on me yet again. 
And friends, it is this love. It is this covenant-keeping, steadfast, mercy-filled love of God. It is this love and this love alone that can satisfy the deepest desires of our hearts. We are most satisfied when what we most need is taken care of. Friends, what we most need as sinners who deserve the judgment of God, what we most need is to be saved from that judgment. And in Jesus and his steadfast love, we've experienced that by God's mercy. And so there's nothing more satisfying than knowing the steadfast, covenantal, mercy-filled love of God. And that's why verse 14 says, Satisfy us in the morning with your love. Notice, this is saying that we are to start the day with satisfaction. How often we can think, well, I'll end the day in satisfaction. If the day goes the way I want it to be. If things happen the way I think they should, then at night I'll say, God, thank you for satisfying me and all those things you did for me. What the psalmist is saying is, friends, we should be satisfied in God before anything else happens to us. We should be satisfied not at the end of the day only. We should start the day with satisfaction because we start the day already with Christ. No matter what you think you need today, here's what you need to know. Your greatest need has already been met in Christ. Our greatest need has already been met in Christ, and so we don't need to ask God for satisfaction. We need to ask God to satisfy us in what we already have. We don't need to ask Him for something else or something more. We just need to ask for more of Him, to know Him, to understand His mercy, His steadfast love more than anything else. And friends, until we're satisfied in Jesus, until His love is what satisfies our heart, we ain't getting no satisfaction. Until Christ is enough, we will never feel like we have enough. I deal with professional athletes in my role as chaplain for the Phillies on a weekly basis. And these are people who achieve all kinds of things. And I can tell you, every achievement just leaves them hungry for the next thing. You would think that, hey, when I finally arrive... You know, they're in the minor leagues. When I finally ride to the big leagues, then I'll be happy. Well, no, now you have to stay in the big leagues. And then it's not just about staying in the big leagues. It's about becoming a player in the big leagues that's known. And then it's not just about being a player, but not staying as a player. And then you come to that crisis of, I'm going to retire, and who am I anymore? And friends, that's that true for all of us. We just keep thinking, when this happens, when that happens, then I'll be satisfied, then I'll be satisfied, then I'll be satisfied, then I'll be satisfied. God says, no, if you're not satisfied in me, then you'll never be satisfied in the gifts that you, that you want me to give. The giver is the greatest gift. And it's only by being satisfied in him that our souls will finally be at peace. And so, friends, if you're here and you feel a sense of discontentment in your soul, that you've been trying to fill in all kinds of ways, I believe God in his love wants you to know that there's a way for you to be filled. And it's not by whatever that thing is that you think you need happening to you. It's by savoring the sweet mercies that God has for you in Christ. It's at the cross where God's staff of authority came down on Jesus and he was struck for us. And his mercy flowed out from him. It's at the cross where our thirsty souls find the living water that we so desperately need. And it's when we are satisfied in the love of God that we can go on to pray as Moses does in verse 16, 
Let your work be shown to your servants and your glorious power to their children. He's asking God to show the redemptive work that God has done. God, show off your work. Show off how satisfying you are. Moses wasn't just content to be satisfied in God for himself. No, he's he's saying, God, what you've done in me as you have satisfied me, now, now show that off to other people. Make your work known. Which is why he closes the psalm by asking, let the favor of the Lord be upon us and establish the work of our hands. Yes, establish the work of our hands. He's asking for God's favor. He's asking for God's mercy to be upon a people to establish their work. What is their work? Well, in light of this context, it is their work to declare the power of God's work. I don't know what your work is, but ultimately here's what all work is about. Our work is about showing off the redemptive power of God's work. And so Moses is saying, I want to share with what you've done with me. I want to share that to my children. I want to share that to the world. God, I want to use, I want to, I want to get to work showing off your work. You see, his experience of God is too much for it to stay just between him and God. No, he wants to spread it to others. You see, what we enjoy, we naturally share. And so as Moses is satisfied in God's love, his natural response is to want to be used by God to spread his love to the entire world. So here's a question to ask yourself. Does how you engage with others and what you share with others speak to how satisfied you are in Christ? If we enjoy, if what we enjoy we naturally share, how much enjoyment are you finding in God? And how is that showing up in what you are naturally sharing? I don't say I can condemn anyone like, oh shoot, I haven't shared the gospel in a long time. If that's true for you, you shouldn't leave here feeling guilty. You should leave here feeling invited. God wants you to know him on a deeper level. God doesn't want you to be content to go through life just feeling like, I should do this, but I don't do this, I messed up with this. No, stop focusing on what you think you should do more of and start focusing on what you really need more of, which is him. Leave here with an invitation to be filled afresh with the mercy of God, to be satiated in him. And as you are, oh, God will naturally give you a heart to want to use your work to declare his work. And so as we bring all this in for a landing, friends, I'm not sure what mess you might find yourself in. I'm not sure the things that can discourage you or tempt you to anger, to fear, to doubt, to worry. worry. Moses was in a messy place in Numbers 20. In the midst of that mess, he experienced God's mercy. And he wrote Psalm 90 from a place of mercy. And so while I don't know what your mess is today, I do know there are sweet waters, a refreshing mercy to be found for our thirsty and parched souls. And knowing that even in the midst of our mess, there is mercy in the mess. God is our dwelling place. He is with you and not left you. And that's his mercy. God is from everlasting to everlasting. He is beyond our comprehension. The God that we don't always understand is the God who's at work in ways beyond what we can understand, and that's God's mercy. And we are all dust, and so this too will pass, and that's God's mercy. But that doesn't mean this is meaningless because God's a God of justice, and so every moment matters, and that's God's mercy. But we don't need to fear God's judgment because Jesus took that judgment for us, and that's God's mercy. 
And no matter how deep our struggle, on the basis of Jesus, we can say, return to me, O Lord, and that's God's mercy. And we can be used by God to be part of his work, to make his love known to a lost and dying world that desperately needs to hear him, and that's God's mercy. Friends, in Psalm 90, we see mercy after mercy after mercy, and so I'm not sure what mess you are in or what mess you might end up in, but God's word promises to all of us there is mercy in our mess. And so let's come to him, never believing that God says enough, but knowing that in Christ, God always says again. He says again. You can come again and again and again. And in Jesus, there's always more mercy for us. Let's pray.